afternoon. Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Uh, to the latest news, uh, one person is dead and one is missing after a group of swimmers called for help in seas north of Whangamata. A group of people got into difficulty at Opotere Beach north of Whangamata earlier this morning. It follows another incident just yesterday when a swimmer at Whangamata died outside of lifeguard patrol hours. Tell us more. We are joined by RNZ reporter Finn Blackwell. Kia ora, Finn. Tell us what can you tell us so far? Kia ora, Wallace. Well, you've said the, the bulk of it right there. No. The latest is that um, a person was unable to be revived, is what police have said, um, after this water incident um, in Opotere. Um, one person is still missing. They're still searching for him in the water, or them, sorry, I should say. We don't know. Um, and then one is in a critical condition. Um, they've been flown to Waikato Hospital uh, and four are in a minor to moderate condition after this incident. I understand that there are still details to come in terms of actually just what happened. Oh, yes, we're still not entirely sure on that, but we are expecting to find out soon. Who's involved in the surge? Well, pretty much every emergency uh, service that you can think of. Police have been involved there since the incident was made aware around 11.30 this morning. Um, St. John's were there. Now, they've sent three choppers, three ambulances and two managers to the scene to treat people there. Um, Surf Lifesaving, of course, are scrambling to, to help with the search and that is... And Fence as well has also been notified, I understand. What sort of a beach is Opotere Beach? Well, I, sp- we know? I, I, I did speak to one local who described it as a, a pristine, natural beach. No, no batches al- along this strip of about, oh, I'm not too sure, sh- I can't quite re- recall how long it was, but mm. pretty remote and isolated as far as I I'm, I'm, uh, understand. No patrols along there at all. So relatively untouched, I would say. All right. Very good to have you on, uh, Finn Kiora. That's uh, RNZ reporter Finn Blackwell. And keep listening to RNZ and uh, you'll get the latest uh, on that. It is eight past four the panel. We have uh, Ruth Money and... Chris Wickhider uh, this afternoon. Well, no doubt we are in for an uncertain 2023 economically, and one of the big questions is just when might interest rates drop? That's what many of us are wanting to know. Close to half of all fixed-term mortgages will finish this year and have to be fixed at higher rates. And back in November, the Reserve Bank tipped the annual inflation here would climb from uh, 7.2% to reach 7.5% in the December and March quarters. But overseas inflation is falling, and the U.S. down to 6.5% last month, down uh, from a 40-year high in June. That was about 9%, I think. Anyway, with us, Kiwi Bank Chief Economist Jared Kerr. Welcome, Jared. Kia ora. What are you anticipating, Jared? Oh, look, we think that uh, price pressure will continue to ease. I think inflation has peaked globally, and we'll see price pressure uh, falling into 2024, which means that you know the majority of inflation that we've imported from overseas will actually start working the other way. Oh. Um, I think by the end of this year, we'll see inflation at much lower levels than, than where they are today. So can you put a finger on it? Nearing the end of 2023, what uh, are you expecting with inflation to be? We think inflation will be closer to 4% uh, than where it is today, which, which sounds good coming down from 25 but it's still above... Uh, the Reserve Bank's target band. Uh, they want inflation 
between 1% and 3%. So a little bit more work to do from them, um, but I think we're definitely on the right track. Okay, so you believe that inflation, what, is it close to its peak or what's your sense? Yeah, we think inflation's peaking right now. Uh, inflation, I think it has peaked globally uh, and that will feed through here. Um, it's the rate at which inflation eases, which is the important bit. Um, the Reserve Bank wants to see inflation moving lower quite quickly and they want to know that they're going to get inflation back towards 2% um, over the next few years. What do you reckon, Ruth? you buy it? Yeah, kia ora, Jared. Can you just tell me why you think it has peaked, though? Yeah, so we've seen commodity prices peak. Um, we've seen commodity prices coming off uh, globally, and, and we're expecting quite a significant slowdown in global growth. And when you see a slowdown in global growth, you see commodity prices coming off. So I think commodity prices will continue to fall um, over the year ahead. We've seen some real positive signs in terms of global supply chains. So shipping costs have come off. A lot of the big contributors to the supply side shock uh, that we saw over COVID have unwound. So there is some good news coming through and there is some deflation uh, pressures coming through from offshore. Locally, things are a little bit more awkward. Um, there is a lot of inflation pressure domestically, particularly coming out of the labour market and wages. It'll take a little longer to turn around. Your face, Ruth, says <laughs> this is somewhat a different narrative to what perhaps you've heard elsewhere. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, it's it's good if Jared's right. I hope you are right, Jared. But it doesn't feel to me to be consistent with perhaps what other... Um, commentary is reporting, so I'm just interested in. It, it just doesn't feel, um, I, you know. I acknowledge that you talked about the speed of which we get from perhaps four to two. Um, it feels like that's a long way off for me and um, the funo that I work with and the communities that I work within. Yeah, and it, it's a fair point. I mean, when we're sitting here right now, feeling the current levels of inflation, which are clearly the highest we've seen since the 80s, uh, it feels uncomfortable. And, and I think uh, we will see inflation pressure persisting for some time. Okay. But we are peaking and the rate uh, of inflation is, is easing. So prices are still going to be higher at the end of this year than where they are uh, now because we're still expecting inflation to be 4%, which is high. It's just that we're, we're winning that battle. Um, and I hope we're winning the battle because if we don't, the Reserve Bank will just keep hiking interest rates and they will keep hiking interest rates until they engineer a recession. Where do you think we're going to sit in terms of OECD? Because we've seen, you, know, you said it's coming down in the States, but it's been high and um, the UK and Australia was only a tiny bit behind us you know, as of just before Christmas. But a lot of those European countries and big economies, their inflation rate's been a lot, it's been double figures, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. It's quite different around the world. There are obviously energy issues uh, in, in Europe. Um, the war in Ukraine is having a larger impact in the Northern Hemisphere than there is in the, in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, there are a lot of different moving parts, but broadly speaking, and, and that's you know, the way we talk uh, when, we're, when we're trying to analyse what's happening globally and how it affects us, uh, prices are peaking from different levels. 
Um, the US, I think, has been a, a great uh, example of how inflation's dropped from 9.1% to 6.5%, and I expect a lot of other countries will follow a similar yeah. trajectory. To what, to, on, on that, to, to, to what extent do we follow countries like the US? I mean, uh, I guess I'm asking how much of the inflation that New Zealanders experience come from overseas events? So pretty much half, you know, almost exactly okay. half of the inflation that we've experienced has been generated offshore, and a lot of that is on the back of, of supply chain issues, which are freeing up now. Um, the other half is domestically generated stuff, and that's the stuff the Reserve Bank's trying to, to squash. Um, and I think they have done enough um, to, to pull inflation back down. Um, you know, and the, the risk is that we have a hard landing here, which is something I hope uh, doesn't happen. Well, it's quite a, interesting to hear, Ruth, I mean, because we are, and we have been told, and we will face a pretty intense 2023. But it's it, it's nice to know, is it not, that there is there's 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 a tunnel, but there's a little bit of light at the end it's of it. A teeny per, bit, a teeny, we might get there, and we might get there. And I uh, thank you, Jared. I've I've learned something, and I, I certainly hope that the um, the drop is um, faster than I thought it was going to be before this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, when people just don't have the disposable income and and are, are really struggling, I would hate for it to to get worse well, before it gets better. Yeah, well, on that, Jared, I mean, the average two-year fixed-rate home loan was 2.6% in November 2020. Last year, 6.3%. There is no doubt that households will still really feel the squeeze this year, uh, mm. <laughs> including myself, when my rate is up for renewal in, what, about a couple of months so many people's are, you know, yeah. we've, we fix, right? And they're all, well, many, many, many of them are coming off. And I, I think that's my concern is how do we live to get to the end of, you know, to 2024 or wherever this inflation is going to settle. It is taking money out of people's pockets every day Jared? that they can't afford. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that, that is where the rubber hits the road. And, and that's exactly what the Reserve Bank's trying to, to engineer. They, they cut interest rates too low. Uh, they stimulated too much. Um, those two-point whatever interest rates, mortgage rates that you were referring to, were the lowest we've ever seen. They were, they were lower than what we had in the 1950s. That was extraordinary stimulus, and it caused a massive run-up in house prices. Now they're reversing that. They've taken those 2.5% mortgage rates, and they've more than doubled them. You know, those, those rates are closer to 7% now. So people who, who have uh, had those uh, rates in, in recent years are now going on to much higher rates. Um, and, and that is exactly what the Reserve Bank's trying to engineer. And they want to slow down uh, consumption because of the inflation pressure we have. And I think that the move that we've seen so far has, has been enough. Um, I'm worried okay. that the Reserve Bank is going to keep hiking and actually inflict too much damage. Okay. Hey, kia ora, Jared. Thank you very much for your time today. That's Jared Kerr, the QE Bank Chief Economist. If you missed a little bit of that, he's saying that nearing the end of 2023, he expects inflation to be at around 4%, a little bit of uh, light at the end of 
uh, the tunnel there, perhaps. 17 past four, we will get to this ball kids story. Quite a bit of response from that. Um, should ball kids work for free or is it a total child exploitation? That at uh, 4.25 um, this afternoon. But to this, this is interesting. Uh, quite an um, interesting article by Thomas Coglin on uh, the political campaign war chests that people have saying that the National Party may start the election year with a $2.3 million war chest. Uh, put that in context, in 2016, the year before the 2017 election, National had $180,000. ACT also raised big sums. They've got over a million dollars, I think. And the Labour, they declared $150,000 in large donations. To discuss is Max Rashbrook, a senior associate at the Institute for Governance and Policy Studies at Victoria University, and he co-authored a report on donations in New Zealand politics last year. Kia ora, Max. Kia ora, Waris. I mean, is, is this big money, $2.3 million? Has it set a new high watermark? I think it has for a non-election year, absolutely. Um, it, it's quite an extraordinary sum of money, um, you know, for, for a year that's that's um, before an election. I mean, yeah, as, as you sort of said, normally, you know, parties might get sort of in maybe in the hundreds of thousands of dollars um, outside of an election year. So what this suggests is, is National's building up a, a really significant war chest, one that's much larger than uh, Labour has, you know, and obviously that raises questions about whether the election is going to be a fair fight or not. Last year bucked the trend of non-election years being typically quiet for political donations, which tend to peak in the months before the polls open. So I'm wondering, why would that have been? Why the buzz in donation activity? What's your sense of thoughts? Well, I mean, obviously, nationally, have, have gone out there and have been fundraising um, through people like Paula Bennett, and have been very successful in it. I mean, what I hear around the traps is that it's very easy for National to um, fundraise at the wealthy end of town at the moment because that part of the community is feeling very disgruntled with Labour. Um, they are the people who were opponents of the MIQ policy, for instance, uh, who objected to the lockdowns. There's a lot of anger at that end of town and, and apparently National are finding it very easy to tap them for very large sums of money. Okay, Ruth Money? Uh, kia ora, Max. Um, I did wonder when I read the article, because it is a non-election year with this um, amount of money, would the previous years of COVID and non-fundraising make it look larger than perhaps it would have been? Um, I mean, it, it, it always sort of comes and goes, but the the numbers that I've put together show that since the last election, um, from the data that we know about, National and Act, between them have raised about $5 million. Um, and, you know, Labour and the Greens, maybe a $1 million. Um, so... Even if you look at things over a longer period, you've still got a really big, um, you know, funding imbalance opening up between the different sides of politics. Mm. Has I, it always been that way? Um, it's it's varied. Um, I guess sort of in the maybe in the late nineties, early two thousands, when Labour had some really good fundraisers, people like Michael Hirschfeld and Mike Williams. They did quite well on the big donations, but for a long time now, um, National's really been 
uh, out fundraising well, when you look at donations. Is that a part of it as well, before we go to Crispy Kinder, because we do know that you had the likes of Mike Williams, who I guess uh, did the same for Labour that Paula Bennett mm-hmm. is doing for National. It's just you've, you're getting the right people on board to bring in the hard, cold cash. There's there's a part of that, but I mean also, of course, you know, Labour have been making you know significant efforts on that front, you know, even after the time of Mike Williams, and I understand they find it harder and harder um, to to get large donations because perhaps because their policies are you know fractionally more um, confrontational with business than they used to be. There's a lot of people don't want to be publicly associated right. with Labour if they're wealthy. Chris. Uh, yeah, I think at the end of the day, I say how much of that sort of um, silent majority can Labour um, mobilise for those smaller donations and what's it going to look like at the end of the day? And I remember, like, if you had um, Matt, what's his name from the Alliance, um, whose name's just escaped me? McCartan. McCartan. He's going to give me a hard time about that one. Um, he was very good at um, raising a lot of money for the Alliance via that small donation type um, thing. Um, so it would be interesting to see who, who, who gets their mojo on and, and how they manage to, to get... Um, I mean, the big donor thing uh, for National is no surprise at all, particularly given the last couple of years, as, as Max said. Um, but, you know, we've still got a fair way to go till we get to the end of the year. But, yes. you know, it, it all just sits with the current swing to the right and looking at, you know, every um, political pundit... Um, saying, you know, it's nationals to bugger up and lose now um, and and labour in a bit of strife. Hey, Max, while you're here on this report, you co-authored with uh, Lisa Marriott, donors giving more than $1,500 to political parties should be identified. That's a suggestion. And no individuals should be able to give more than fifteen grand in a year. How would that change things? Well, I mean, what it would do is it would, I think it would massively level the playing field for donations. So it would, it would just change the incentives and it would force political parties to go out there and do what Chris has just been talking about, which is really to try to raise a large number of small donations, you know, so that they're engaged with the public and with lots of people who have got a bit of a say over how the parties are funded rather than trying to tap a, a small number of large donors, which is the, the situation at the moment. Very good, Max. Thanks for your time. That's, yeah. uh, Obama Max. was another one. He he employed that tactic very successfully in his first presidential run, and yeah. the Democrats surprised the Republicans about how much money they had in total. Yes, that's at the right. End of the day. Was quite an innovating practice, wasn't it? And wasn't it Bernie Sanders who raised when he was going up against Donald Trump? He raised actually more than Trump by getting people to little and often, little and often, and it was twenty bucks a time, and the money rolled through and he got tens of millions of dollars Correct. from 20 bucks a time. Yep. Having having worked in the volunteer um, field, which, well, not a bull person, but we'll get on to that question <laughs> later, um, f- there is an art to fundraising. There really is. And there is an yeah. absolute skill. The Paula Bennett's, the Mike Williams, I, I do acknowledge that there if you don't have the right resources in your camp, fundraising is very It's a real difficult. skill, isn't it? Mm. 
Making that connection, particularly getting people in open today's wallet. economy, yeah. um, you know, if my mortgage is moving to up by five hundred dollars a fortnight, um, fundraising is going to become very might, difficult. We might get a salesperson on the panel. Actually, how do you get people to open a wallet? We Wouldn't could challenge them to get you to open your wallet. Okay, okay, yeah, because I do carry cash these days. Hey, there we I go. think I've got some cash now, about five dollars. There we go. Anyway, twenty-five past for the panel on RNZ National. Already a response, quite a response to this. Should kids work for free? It's caused an uproar on social media. For a tennis-loving youngster, it would be a dream come true being a ball kid on the same court as, say, Coco Golf. Two and a half thousand young people apply to be ball kids every year for the Australian Open. There's intense training and a lot of pressure for ball kids in the Open. We know that. And they're not paid a cent. Is this the sports version of artists getting paid an exposure, someone asked. Is it a privilege to be on the same court as your Novak Djokovic's, or is it utter child exploitation? Around the panel on this, Ruth Money. It's a privilege for them. Not exploiting anybody. They choose, so? they choose to do it. Community, society, we, we operate on volunteers. We, we might volunteer in the library too. Does that mean that they need to get paid putia? These kids are getting paid experience. They're getting paid gear and kit and prize packs. It's not that they're not getting uh, something. They're being it's exploited oh, by a corporation. Wallace. <gasps> by a machine. <sighs> Surely, I totally disagree. And they're getting their mugs on the telly for their mates to see them. Yeah, and Every they're getting signatures of Novak or whoever their heroes are. And there's plenty of people queuing for it. Yeah. I think that's the key. That point there: two and a half thousand exploited kids volunteer to be exploited. If they struggled to get them, and they were still paying them nothing, then no, I, I. I Usually, I would say, you know, you pay people for what they do, but you know, this is this is kids who like tennis. Hang they on, want to on. be there. They want to see their kids. Let's just let's just try and turn it around. Okay, you both of you, you have a daughter, a son, a nephew, a niece, saying, "Hey, uh, auntie, or hey, dad, um, I'm so excited. I have got a job this summer being in the ball court for." The Australian Open or the ASB Classic, fantastic, fantastic. What's the what's the bonus? How much you get paid? I get paid nothing. I would never ask that though, because I think you're measuring this in pure cash. I'm measuring it in experience and in learn. They're learning to show up on time, to work as oh, a team. Wow! They get their gear. They get to hang out with their friends. What if I said to you both that Wimbledon pays them about three hundred dollars a week? Great. Then maybe and what if with I said their experience you, from Australia, they could enrol at Wimbledon. And what if I said to you both that the New York Open also pays them around sixteen or fifteen to sixteen dollars an hour, and the Australian Open pays them not a cent? What would you say to that? I'm so good with that. Yeah. Wow. Okay, Chris. <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. Okay, um, so Barb says there are a number of, a number of us that do voluntary work for sports we love, and much of this is at the lower levels. A chance to be at this Aussie Open, seeing go from Nadal, Djokovic. It's a dream for most young people. We can afford it. Learning to help others for free is an important life skill. You gain Barb. more than you give. Good work, Barb. Um, 
<laughs> if the opportunity is the payment, where does the buck stop? Being grateful does not balance the books. The era of working is gone. Unpaid intern. The unpaid intern era is gone. No, it isn't. It's not a corp. It's not a. It's not the same as an office job where this is completely and utterly voluntary for the experience. Okay. I mean, it's like I mean, how close do kids get to the sideline of an All Blacks game these days? They don't, because the the corporate nature of it, the controlled institution of it precludes that these days that's something that's gone tennis is actually the inverse of that and these kids are getting an opportunity to get right up at the at the top echelons and you know be part of it well here's one then oh my god i don't believe what i'm hearing at that elite level there is no excuse not to pay kids at an open event goodness me you are paying them. You're paying them experience. You're paying them all sorts of things that aren't just, it isn't just cash. I, the word exploitation is there to grab a headline, and I completely disagree that this, this is just clickbait. Okay, you're on the panel, uh, NZ National, what do you think? Text me at 2101. Both our panellists uh, think that these um, wonderful young people should do this for free. Uh, your thoughts, you can email me, the panel at rnz. If they want to do. <laughs> Correct. There's no coercive okay. control right. here. Uh, we are with Chris Wickider, uh and Ruth Money.